This is Kevin Evans with the chapter by chapter live class at Crossroads Assembly of God in Greenville. And we uh, are in chapter 13 of Acts. And last week we got down to chapter 12 before we ran out of time. And before we start, I uh, have to do some clarifying. It seems like I do that a lot at the beginning of each class. Uh, because of the nature of our class, which is to do an in-depth dive into scripture, we have to look at details, and details are important, and it puts everything within a context, and that gives us a better understanding of what scripture says. The danger of that is that we end up fussing about details that don't matter. And back in the day, they used to have this expression called, you know, theologians arguing about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. And because evidently that happened at some point in English history. Uh, well, I have no idea. And I don't think they did either. That's the point. Okay, so, and it doesn't matter, even if you did know. Uh, and, but however, I also think that details are important. There's another old expression that God is in the details. Never mind what Oscar Wilde said. Uh, so I think it's so, so, so we got tied up on one last week. And I referred to the uh, uh, temp Herod's temple as being the second temple. And then Chris Stevens challenged me and said, oh, no, no, contraire. Uh, Herod's temple was the third temple. And then Chris Strawn says, no, wait, the Jews are planning on rebuilding the third temple. So the temple that isn't built yet can't be Herod's temple. And then I said something. Did, did he agree? Really? Well, well, this is important that we know where everybody is before I tell you the answer. Okay. So, uh, it, it, so at that point, because I was absolutely certain that I was correct, I said something snotty to Chris. I forgot exactly what it was. It would, I gave you an out. That was a little uppity of me. I'm going to have to give that to you. I apologize. And, and, but that, that, that made the hair in the back of his neck stand up. So after, after class, after I turned off the microphone, he hits me out in the hallway with, with Google on his phone. And he's proving to me that Zerubbabel's temple was the second temple. And there it was on Google in black and white. So it's not like I can, anybody can argue with Google. <laughs> I hope all my teacher friends are listening to that one. And uh, I, I told him I would get back with him. So after an hour and a half of intensive study, Chris, well, are you ready for the conclusion? We were all right. We were all right. <laughs> Uh, it seems that, yay, yes, exactly. Uh, it seems that uh, the temple was uh, torn down during the Babylonian activity. Solomon's. It, yeah, at Solomon's temple was torn down. And then uh, we had Nehemiah, you know, the book of Nehemiah comes in, they rebuild the temple, which was known as Zerubbabel's temple because he was the king of Israel at the time or the prophet or whoever, anyway. So that was called Zerubbabel. So that was temple number two. And however, that was several hundred years before Christ. And uh, the temple had evidently uh, seen better days. And they had gone through a, a huge uprising in the generations before. 
Um, um, oh, I've started to chase a rabbit in my brain. Wrong thing. Anyway, uh, so uh, they, they'd gone through all this trouble. And so Herod comes in trying to show how tough he is and impress the Romans. So he started building programs all over Jerusalem. And one of those building programs was to refurbish Zerubbabel's temple. So the temple was still there, but Herod's temple, because that's what he wanted everybody to call it, and that's what they did, is actually Zerubbabel's temple with a big fancy white facade on the outside, because he brought in white granite and he redid a lot of the outer things. And I was trying to figure out if the porticos that were around the thing were part of the original temple or if it was something that Herod built. And I was, that was inconclusive. I really so don't know. Let's, let's do a compromise. <laughs> Let me guess. It was temple number two, two point. Yeah, it, was, I, I, it was the second temple. It was just Herod refurbished yeah. it and named it after himself. So basically he bought or took a pre-existing uh, temple and just upgraded it and just says, call it Herod's temple. And then at 70 AD, during the next big Jewish uprising, the Romans destroyed it. And, and now there, there hasn't been a temple since then. So there have only been two temples so far and a tabernacle, which was a big tent that they hauled around in the dead. As far as the end, end times is when they'll rebuild it. Either, yes. Either they'll rebuild a temple or they'll actually put up a tent. Nobody really knows. And so when they rebuild it, then it will be the, uh, that will be number three. So kudos to everybody. We had a big argument over something that totally didn't matter. And everyone was right, which is not satisfying at all. Oh, really? No, well, no, that doesn't count. I don't know is a very good answer, actually. I respect I don't know. I wish more people would say I don't know. Yeah, sure, sure. Did you know, did you know that Paul had a sister? I didn't know that. <laughs> Paul who? What are you talking about? The Apostle Paul. Paul. Why, 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 what does that have to do with anything? I just, we recently get into study about Paul. I just thought I'd share Oh, that. okay. Well, okay. Was, Paul had a sister. Let's I, write that I was, down. I was looking at the tree of his life. His sisters. See, yeah. Okay, okay. No, I just, I thought Paul was just, you know, himself. I didn't know, I didn't know he had <clears throat> You thought he was an only child? Yeah, when did I that ever happen? Yeah, yeah, I expect. Well, <laughs> they, say, <laughs> they say that he had a father, but his mother was unknown. Nobody knows who his mother was. And to clarify, if someone has a sister, they're no longer themselves or himself. Like, he's not himself anymore if he has a sister. <laughs> Don't confuse Bill. It's really easy to confuse Bill. Yeah, no, yeah. I, just, I okay. always thought Paul was just, you know, the only child. The only child. I mean, he didn't. He never, you never really talk about any of his family or anything. So, but I was just looking at the tree of his of life. Time women it's it's pretty. Them. The tree of his life is pretty interesting. Okay. Well, we, we uh, let's put a pin in that, and we will come back to discuss Paul if we get that far. I've got a few notes on Paul actually today. Uh, we got through verse twelve last time, and at this point. Uh, Paul and Barnabas have been sent forth by the Holy Spirit from the church of Antioch to go forth and preach, and they have gone to Cyprus 
excuse me, which is an island right there in the middle of the Mediterranean, and it's uh, the first big spot that you sail to from where he is. So it, it's not a big jump. They took a, the shortest uh, boat trip that you can take, and he got to Cyprus, and he started preaching there. And in Cyprus, he uh, came across a um, uh, the, 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 I'm not doing a very good of summarizing, the governor, Sergius Paulus, was being preached to by a sorcerer named Elimaeus, who was making his own stuff up as he went along. And Paul uh, cursed him to blindness. And temporarily, just like Paul had been uh, made blind on the road to Emmaus. I don't, I, you know, I find that it's a curious question. Yeah, that is a very interesting uh, I don't know if this is Paul's personal choice of a curse, but having gone through it, I think he probably understands this better than most. I went through it, you have. It's, well, you know, uh, but at the same time, it, it says that under the influence of the Holy Spirit, so maybe this is the Holy Spirit doing this and, and not Paul. Uh, I don't know how to answer that question. Maybe. Maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit acts through us doing things that we get and understand. You know, maybe, maybe because it was Paul, that's what the Holy Spirit did. You know, I, think, I don't think we're uh, completely inconsequential in this story. How long is a season? Because he says you'll be blind for a season. Um, till things change. <laughs> That's a good answer too, actually. Okay, so uh, so he was struck blind, and the governor is converted, and, uh, and, and and that's where we stopped. So Paul continues his travels, and if you go back to the notes that I gave you at this point, like a month ago, that had the little map on the back. You have your little map, or you, you might have a better map in your Bible. We have our notes. Do you have our notes? Uh, I didn't have notes today. Oh. Okay. I had notes. Well, I had notes from last week. We're continuing the notes I gave oh, out okay. last okay, week. I got it. I got okay. It. So Paul is at Paphos. If I'm looking at my little map here, and 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 then he went to Perga, Paphos. Oh, he's at Paphos, and he goes to Perga in Pamphylia. Say that. 15 times straight. Anyway, uh, but just basically straight up north in Pamphylia is a region. Per Perga is a, uh, a, a port city. And uh, so that would be where you would land if you're going to the northern part of the Mediterranean. Uh, Paul himself is from Tarsus, which is also on that map, just over about 100 miles. I am pretty sure he's been to Perga before. You know, he lived in Tarsus for 10 years. Surely in that time, he got out and about a little bit. Uh, so I think these are towns that Paul is familiar with. These are, he is not uh, foreign to their culture. It says that John, John Mark deserted them. I'm getting there. So... Uh, they go to Paphos, and I'm just going to read this in sections. I usually read the whole thing, but there's a lot here. So from Paphos, starting at verse 13, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. 
From Perga they went on to the city in Antioch, and on the Sabbath they entered the synagogue and sat down, and after reading from the law of the prophets and the synagogue rulers sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. Okay, so, yeah, Luke just kind of throws that little bit in there and doesn't explain what it is what, or why. Why did John Mark leave them? Remember that John Mark is the nephew, first cousin, once removed, maybe, of Barnabas. Uh, he's a relative, and he is acting as Barnabas's aide, and he's following Barnabas and Paul around and doing all the dirty work and keeping camp. You know, he's that guy. Uh, so we don't know why he turned around and left. Um, you want you want to start guessing because there's a lot of guessing. Well, they may let us know more when the next <coughs> chapter in chapter 15 because he's mentioned again in chapter 15. Yeah, um, I'm going to say that they disagreed on something. The word in, that Luke uses here just means simply returned. Paul refers to this in his writings, and when he talks about him, uh, 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 John Mark leaving them, he uses the word betrayed. That's why, that's why I say disagreement. So Luke, who was actually Paul's uh, aide, he, he had the same job as John Mark. Uh, Luke does not slam John Mark with the betrayed word. Paul does later in another letter. So Luke is being more specific and doesn't try to read anything into it. Um, that could, I don't, I don't know how to interpret that. It meant a lot to Paul, didn't mean a lot to Luke. So here's guess number one. John Mark was relatively young and uh, he's following around Uncle Barnabas and he'd done a lot of traveling and he dealt with a scary sorceress, sorcerer and uh, the traveling was a little much and Barnabas decides it's time for him to go home. Or Barnabas had talked to his uh, sister, John's mother, and John's mother told, made Barnabas promise to send him back at a certain point. You don't get him all year. Don't steal my child. And uh, he had an obligation to send John Mark back. It doesn't say that. That's a possibility. Hi. Hey, uh, Lance, about six. Can you join You certainly may. Come in, find a chair. We are very informed. There, there's big stacks of them back there. Just make yourself uncomfortable. Says he had a godly mother. Who? John Mark. Okay, well, that's good to know. Yeah, we do know that, actually, from Scripture. So, uh, you know, there, there's that possibility. So he's young enough that, that Barnabas has to send him back or whatever. Uh, but Paul, I don't think he would be angry about that. So I don't think that fits neatly enough. So here's theory number two, which is also one of those things that absolutely doesn't matter. We're digging into this way too deep. Um, another thing that happens here is about this chapter, when you start seeing Paul and Barnabas listed, it becomes Paul and Barnabas, whereas before it was Barnabas and Saul. When they started preaching to Gentiles, Suddenly, Paul's name, Saul goes by his non-Greek, well, his Greek name, and it's first. 
And that first in ancient literature means that you're the boss. They always list the major person first on a list, either the oldest or the most authoritative. You know, so suddenly Paul is the boss of the group and before Barnabas was. So I think John Mark was used to Uncle Barney, you know, running the show. That was nice and comfortable. Now we've got this angry little lawyer running the thing. And uh, I don't know that he got along real well with, with Paul. And, and Paul, and he left with Uncle Barney's blessing and it made Paul mad because he lost his aid. But we also know that eventually Barnabas is going to depart from him as well. Well, yeah, yeah. So there may have been a lot of dissension there. Could be, could be. Uh, I think Barnab Barnabas seems to have been a very amiable person. He seems to have gotten along well with most and very few people have anything negative to say about Barnabas. Paul is a very direct and hard speaking man, which is sometimes very useful, you know. But, uh, you know, he has his place. But I don't know that uh, if, I, 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 my, if I were writing this screenplay, I would say that John Mark left because he was not very comfortable with Paul's leadership once he suddenly became the leader in the middle of the trip. The band broke up. Yes. Do you think a lot of Paul's beatings and stonings and everything he brought on himself because of his hardness? Well, just a question. Paul is, I, I, I'm going to take the high road and say that Paul was acting under the influence of the Holy Spirit in each one of the messages that he gave. And sometimes there were sacrifices to be paid for that. I don't know that God always calls us into a comfortable situation. Carry your cross. There you go. And in this case, Paul's cross was a thorn in his side, which we hear about later and argue about incessantly, since we're arguing about things that don't matter. And, uh, and the prevailing Southern Baptist uh, interpretation is that Paul had poor eyesight, and that was the thorn in his side. And to that, Kevin says, hogwash. No, no, no. Paul was stoned. He gets stoned in this chapter. Paul was stoned, what, three times? Whipped multiple times? And yeah, his first, he, his he, got, he, he marooned and, and, and lost in sea twice. Eight bit. Uh, yeah. This man was a hard traveler, and he had gone through several. All of those events are life-changing, scarring events. And he's going to carry some kind of scar from each one of those beatings for the rest of his life. And I think it is very simple. He had a thorn in his side. He either had a, 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 a fragment of something embedded in him that he couldn't get out, or he had a fractured bone that did not heal, or he had some kind of serious muscular injury that felt like that, and it didn't go away. It's something that didn't heal out of his many misadventures. Yeah, his first, now the first official stoning 
that was recorded is coming up here, but we don't know what happened to him, like you said, in the 10 years before. Right, and on that long list that he makes, uh, scripture only accounts for half of those. You know, so the other half had to take place somewhere, and it was in Tarsus. It had to have been. So, I mean, to your theory, though, like, isn't it God's will that all be healed from that one Messiah? Why? So isn't that the will of God, right? That everyone's healed, and especially one that's under the I hope so. He's taking over the belief. Yeah, no, well. Because officially the assemblies of God. No, he's throwing the puffball so I can try to knock it out of the park. Go ahead. Not anymore, but for years early on, the official stance of the assemblies of God was it was a person following and making fun of them because they couldn't put the fact that Paul prayed for healing and God said no. Oh, please. Yeah, Uh, we don't follow that anymore, but that used to be the standard belief that they couldn't have been a physical, which the Greek does physical well, words to describe this. This will upset a lot of Christians, but I don't think God calls us to comfort, and I don't think he promises us uh, uh, a nice time. We're, we're going to have trials in our lives. In this world, you're going to have many persecutions. You know, you're, you're, there are going to be accidents, and amputations are going to happen, and it's going to stay there, and what now? I think he also had some major PTSD. Who would now it says that he went after his conversion, that he went to after he preached in Damascus, that he disappeared. He went to Arabia. Yep. Is that where Tar- Tar- Tarsus is? Arabia. Well, Arabia is this way, and Tarsus is right there. It's like he went, uh, took a wide swing around the Mediterranean. He went up into Syria, which is what they call Arabia. The Rift Bible for. Yeah. So that's where I guess, like you said, he was. We don't know. And I think that because he was from Tarsus, I, again, I think these are places that he was familiar with. He, yeah. He'd been into Syria before. You know, that, it wasn't that big of a travel. For, you know, and he was, he was a, a Jew of a Greek, from a Greek city, and so he was very familiar with the Greek culture. See, here's kind of the, I got this map here that shows where he went to Arabia. Okay. And then back up, and then it shows his first, official stoning was in Lystra. Well, there we go. We're getting there. We're getting yeah. there. So, so hold, hold on your map. Hold on your map. That's good. Okay, so after the reading from the law, and the, so he's sitting in the synagogue. He's doing exactly what Christ did when he came into a new, a new city. He, uh, he, he uh, meets the people, gets to know the city for a day or two, and when Saturday rose around, which was the Sabbath, he goes to synagogue, the local church. Not the temple. Synagogue is a little more relaxed than the temple. There was a ceremony that you went through on the Sabbath, and a rabbi would stand up and he would read a prayer. I forget what the Hebrew word for the prayer is. And then they sang songs. And, uh, and then the rabbi would preach, or just teach, really. More teaching than preaching. And usually they would take a scripture and they would explain it, kind of like what we do here. And then they would talk about it. I mean, it was, it was basically an organized, structured Bible study. And what they would do when, 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 when a visiting rabbi came in, if they were a rabbi who's been to school and studied under the smart people, well, we want them to do the teaching, right? And so it was, uh, 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 it was the polite thing to do to offer the chair to the visiting rabbi when the rabbi comes in. So... Christ would go into the synagogue and uh, they would offer the, the podium to him and then he would preach Christianity and that's where his word began. 
to the Jews right there. And so the, the apostles are doing the same thing. Uh, if they go into a large city, they would uh, speak in the synagogue. That's the, probably usually the first thing that they would do. They would often go to the synagogue, and in front of the synagogue there might be beggars and uh, people that were handicapped, and they would find one that everybody was well-known that had been handicapped a long time, heal him, and suddenly everybody's paying attention to everything that they say. Why didn't they heal all of them? Because it only took one to get them to pay attention to everything that they say. I don't know. But isn't God's will to heal them all? You know, we're going in circles again. I don't think so. I don't think that's God's will. Yes. Uh, I was about to uh, say this kind of reminds me of a theodicy by John Hick called Soul Building Theodicy, or I like to call it character building. So maybe that's what God wants to do with Paul, to build his character. Okay. I don't know. That's just the pain builds character. That's what you're trying to say? Okay. More okay. Or okay. Less. okay. I don't know. That pain builds character? Grace I mean, my grace is sufficient. Oh, per oh and, and, uh, perseverance leads to, yeah, yeah that, I, I don't know, Romans 5. Yeah, yeah. Five. Tribulation leads to. Okay, so he speaks. And uh, he steps up, and he is speaking to a mixed crowd. They are Jews, but this is... Paphos, and it is up in Greek country. And you've got Jewish people that are coming to their church to worship because that is their religious practice. But they have friends who are going with them. The Greeks are pantheistic. They believe in a lot of different gods, and they have no problem believing in this one too. So, yeah, let me go see what your god is all about. That's not an un-Greek thing to do. Uh, in addition, they're intermarrying with Greeks. That's happening too. So you have the Greek wife with the, the solid Hebrew man. And so she's come in and may convert to Judaism and may not. And they could, but, but you could still come to synagogue and worship. And there is no prohibition for a Greek to enter a synagogue. It's more like a community center. There were prohibitions in the temple. That was holy ground. Synagogue is not holy ground, you know, so anybody can come in and have a chat and they're good with that Right, okay, so but a mixed wife couldn't go in the temple, right? No um, Well, there, there were places you had to go. It was a little more complicated than that anyway uh, Paul is speaking to this group and he has this sermon and let me see if I can. The one thing that we don't really see in here is I haven't ever seen in here where Barnabas actually preached. It was always Paul. Well, there you go. Maybe that's why his name's listed first. Standing up, this is verse 16. <coughs> Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. So now we know who's in the audience. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt with mighty power. He led them out of that country. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took 450 years. Quick synopsis of the Old Testament. And he is basically saying, you Jews are the chosen people. 
That's the summary. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave him Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want to him. So he's summarizing through all the kings, and he quoted it once, letting them know that he's actually read the book at some point. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, that they haven't heard before, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. It makes me wonder if they've heard of John. I have to assume that they have. Uh, as John was completing his work, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not that one. Not he, but No, but he is coming after me, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. He included the Gentiles in that. Scandalous. But he was sent to the Gentiles. Yes. Paul was. That's what I'm saying. But my point is the Gentiles have been listening to the rabbis before this saying, uh, here's what its sin is, and you're not the chosen people, and you have to live this way, and you can't live that way, and you have to do this. And you can't do that. Oh, and I've got a lot of these. So pull out a little book. But you start writing things down on what you can and can't do. It's going to get complicated. You know, that's what they've been dealing with. Do you think this was a shift in his ministry? This is a huge shift in their understanding of gospel, particularly the Gentiles. Okay? So brothers, children of Abraham, and you God bring Gentiles, it is for us that the <laughs> message of salvation has been sent. So it's to the Gentiles. And that's the first time all the Gentiles in the room go, <gasps> The people of Jerusalem and their rulers do not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus as it is written in the second Psalm. You are my son. Today I have become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead never to decay is stated in these words. I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is stated elsewhere. You will not let your holy ones to see decay. So he's giving his references to show that what he's saying has been prophesied and he's tying it all in like a good rabbi. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers and his body decayed. For the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that though Jesus, through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. That's the next <gasps> moment. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, and he quotes Habakkuk. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days 
that you would never believe even if someone told you. And so that was the end of the sermon, at least as far as Luke recorded it. It is the longest sermon that Paul gives in Scripture at one time, for whatever that's worth. Um, the gist of this is the Messiah came. The Messiah was rejected by the Jews. That Messiah's message is open to the Gentiles and includes all of the rest of you losers. And what he brings is not world dominion like the Jews were hoping for. He brings you forgiveness for all of your sins, all of those times that you could not follow, all of those little prescriptions that the rabbis were having you write down in your little book of sins. I don't know how they kept up with all of this. And you don't have to bring sacrifices anymore. You're forgiven. You are justified in the eyes of God. How powerful is that? This is the first time they've heard it. That's what I was about to ask. Is this, had they, so they had not heard, because this is not what the, um, what is being shared in the synagogue. No. Not, so, so that's why, like that's why they, he, like why he said everything that he said. Yes. Like the backstory and the whole. Yes. Because they had not heard it like this comprehensive. Like, right. He had to put it in context to show what had just happened. Yes. They would have understood what he was talking about, though, like when um, they were in the wilderness. Like they would have understood all of that. Right? Yes. Because they knew about that. But what they didn't know, I guess he, he was trying to connect everything. And then. Messiah is here. Yes. He had to establish who the Messiah was and why that needed to happen. And then he showed that Christ came. And then he gave verses showing that it was the Christ. Because what happened with Jesus was prophesied to happen to the Christ. So, and they would have known about the prophecies yes, as well. Yes. So he was trying to explain to them that like, it was all pointing to Jesus. Yep. Wow. Uh, were they still, I've often wondered, were they still giving, doing the Jewish people, were they still doing the sacrifice with the priests and all that even after Jesus was crucified. I, I, yeah. I never really saw the history on whether they continued on doing what they were doing before Jesus. I assumed that Orthodox Jews continued to sacrifice in the temple till the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, yes. But it had to be done in the temple. You can't sacrifice at a synagogue. Right. Yeah. Um, as Paul and Barnabas, verse 42, were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. Isn't it great when you're a preacher and you walk out on Sunday and they go, oh, no, don't leave. We want you to speak next week, too. We'll tell the pastor to go on vacation. Please, please, we want you to speak. Does that ever happen to you yet? Probably not. No? Sure. Just wondering. Yeah, yeah. So they're begging them for more. This is something new, and this was profound. And they are receiving it positively. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews, devout converts to Judaism, followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. So the good Jewish people really liked them and wanted them to come back and preach next week. Let's keep doing this. Oh my goodness, that was powerful. I'm so glad you came. 
Oh, look, we need to talk more about this Jesus dude. What? What? You know, I need, I need, I need details. It was the Messiah? Really? We're getting that response. They're not rebelling. They're embracing. It's positive when he walks out at the end of the day on Saturday. And in the converted Jew, that means that they were not to be converted Jew. You had to not be a real one. Yeah, yeah. We're impressed as well. And the next Sunday, things are So, and then, and then, and then it goes to verse 44, and it skips six days. We don't know what happened during those six days. It's a, it's a week later. Well, let me tell you what's going to happen in the Gospel of Kevin in those six days. These guys were doing a lot of talking. There were other sermons. There was, where there was a lot of informal talk in people's houses. Hundreds of people came by. Both Barnabas and Paul are preaching in different locations in the city. Oh, by the way, do you know how many people live in this city? A hundred thousand. I was thinking this was a village, and then, but it, and it is now. But during the day, according to archaeology and coinage collections, I don't know how that tells them this number, but they have estimated the population based upon the coins they've dug up in, 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 in uh, this town that uh, there were 100,000 people there. So we get to verse 44 a week later after the informal revival. On the next Sabbath... Almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. How many people did I say live in this city? A hundred thousand. I want you to picture a hundred thousand people in a, in, a, in, a, in a... How many people can you fit into the stadium at UT? Do you know? I mean, I don't think that's a hundred thousand people. Yeah, at UT? Yeah. Down in Austin? Yeah. That's over a hundred thousand. That's a hundred thousand people? So we've got a stadium of, 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 of football fans screaming for more on the second week. This is the best revival ever, ever. When the Jews saw the crowd, <laughs> when the little Pharisee that was preaching to 15 people a week ago sees the crowd, he says, now wait a minute. Suddenly, he feels out of control. Uh, and he was. And so they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. So all the Jews turned on him when suddenly the entire city of, of, of Greeks, all of those nasty Greeks that they don't like and are better than, are suddenly embracing this idea of, of, of having their sins forgiven. You know, they're about to join the faith. They're about to turn this entire city into a big Christian Judeo church. And wouldn't they want that? I don't know. They wanted to be in charge of it. And they wanted it to look like what they wanted it to look like. Right? They did the same thing as Jesus. They did. So Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first, since you rejected it and do not consider yourself worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. So Jews, if you're not going to take it, then we go to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded, and he quotes scripture again, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So there was no surprise. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. 
So he's preaching to a crowd of 100,000 people and they're converting. It's a Billy Graham crusade. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. They expelled them from their region. They had the biggest revival they've ever seen, and they kicked them out of town. But they did what Jesus told them to do. So they shook the dust from their feet as Christ instructed his disciples, although remember, these two are not disciples, and in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy with the Holy Spirit. Okay. And suddenly all the music people leave. I did that once. Wait, you incited a riot? What happened? Well, it was early in my teaching career. And uh, I, uh, every Friday in the fall, that my school would cut 45 minutes out of my last period, which teachers love, by the way, when you cut the same period every Friday. And, uh, and then I had to go to the auditorium and monitor my students while they had a pep rally. And uh, in the pep rally, you have a bunch of high school students who are at the very end of the day, and they're getting out of a little bit of class, and they're hoping that the buses will come soon. And uh, they're tired. And you have a bunch of cheerleaders jumping around going, rah, rah, sis, boom, ba, get excited, get excited. And everybody in the stands is going, uh. I know that feeling. So you've been to this pep rally, have you? Well, not that. Okay, okay. Um, I, and, and I would stand there as the speech teacher, and I would say, uh, you know, they're not doing this well. If you're going to get people excited, that is not how you get them excited, you know. And I'm thinking, if I could do this, I would, I would do this so much better. And I'm sorry, that's just how I'm built. That is how I think. I wasn't trying to be uppity or anything. I'm just thinking, I could do this better. And so my principal, not knowing me very well, made a horrible mistake of asking me to make the pep rally speech one week. Oh, no. At Hugh Springs. No, you were not. Thank God you were not. So, so what I did, so what I did, I wrote my speech. And, uh, but, but it's not what you say to high school students. It's never what you say. It's what you do. And so I uh, started my speech, and instead of standing in the middle of the floor and droning it into the microphone like all the coaches, there was this uh, stand that has all the sound equipment on it with this big heavy shelf in the front. So I stepped up on a chair and I stood on top of the stand in the middle so I'd be four feet taller. And that's not something that people were allowed to do and was making all the coaches sitting behind me really nervous. And uh, I gave my speech from that. So that got their attention. They were paying attention to me. And then at my big climax, at the end of my arousing speech, I uh, had my entire speech class run into the front like the cheerleaders and they threw 50 pounds of hard candy into <laughs> the bleachers. And so candy comes raining down upon them, which means that everybody is standing up at this point catching the candy. And then 
they got excited. Yeah, you, you would like this, wouldn't you? And they got excited, and so they took the candy and they started throwing it at other people. <laughs> and candy rained back and forth, which I thought was a good thing because I had them excited. Rah, rah, let's go get them. Lyndon is going to go down. And, uh, and there's candy flying everywhere. And 15 minutes later, I was in the principal's office uh -huh. yes, being were. dressed down for giving a successful pep rally speech. <laughs> I'd pay good money if there were a video of that and just watch that speech. Yeah. Because it seems that some of the little old lady teachers that were monitoring the wild students were hit by hard candy. <laughs> <laughs> On purpose. <laughs> Absolutely. Not I'm pretty sure everyone in the auditorium, well, it was a gym. Everyone in the gym was hit by hard candy at one point. I know I was regularly. But you know what? That was kind of the point. Uh, it's not going to hurt me if you hit me with hard candy. Uh, but but that, uh, that upset the, the, the principal. And it seems that when you go to a pep rally, the last thing administration wants is pep. <laughs> Chill. That was made, I was never invited back. That was my one and only pep rally speech because obviously I was the most successful pep rally speaker they've ever had. It was a threat to the status quo. Which principal was it? Ogden. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you threatened the status quo. I did, I did. Okay, well, you know, I think that's kind of what. Paul's doing here too. Uh, you know, he has this massive, successful uh, revival, and it upset all the powers that be because it wasn't their revival. And he's preaching something a little different than what they're preaching. They're starting to look bad a little bit. You know, they can either embrace it or they can fight it. And actually, the Jews had done really well with fighting everything. You know, they 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 beaten down. You know, they 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 had the right to find anything that they thought was heretical and then destroy it. And the Romans let them. They never so. did. You know, you can go all the way back. They didn't do what God told them to do when they went into the Promised Land. I mean, they were told to wipe out all the people, so they didn't intermingle with it, and they didn't wipe them all out. And then they intermingled. They even sacrificed their own children. Okay, one last thought, and we we're out of time. Uh, this is kind of for free. He went to, where did he end up? Iconium. Right? Yeah. Iconium is where Timothy is from. I was trying to find stuff in Iconium. And there is this passage about Paul in a non-scriptural text that comes from the second century, written by, written by, am I ahead of myself? I don't know. Yes, I'm ahead of myself. Hold on. Anacyphorus, the second student. And, and, and it reads, uh, he's describing Paul physically. It's a physical description of what Paul looked like. Do we know if this is 100% accurate? No, but it's within three generations of Paul. I don't know what he's working off of. Uh, most of everything else that he wrote down was an accurate description of Paul's you know, uh, journeys. It's just kind of a study of Paul. And he wrote, a man small in size with meeting eyebrows. <laughs> unibrow. You know what that means? Yeah, yeah. He's got a unibrow. 
which would make sense when you look at the cultural, you know, the, the, the ethnic background that he's got. They're olive-skinned men with, with a lot of hair. So he's got meeting eyebrows, a rather large nose, bald-headed, bold-legged, full of grace. At times he looked like a man, and at times he looked like an angel. Really? That's it? That's it. Uh, he was an ugly man covered by God. I, I think that's an excellent description. Now, is that actually what he looked like? I can't swear to it, but I'm guessing it's close. Uh, I also know that Paul in Greek literally means shorty. And so his given name is Saul among the Hebrews, but among the Greeks, he goes by shorty. So he is... You know, so that's consistent with a man of small size, you know, so I, I, I think that's interesting. So I can't prove it, but now you all have this mental picture of what Paul looked like, and it will never go away from you. So there you go. Uh, and with that, I'm going to close because I'm out of time. We are going to pick this up where? Chapter 14. Yeah, just straight up in chapter 14. Did we get all the way through? Okay, okay. Chapter 14 it is. And uh, I will see you guys next week. And that will be the last week before Christmas. So, signing off.